So who here remembers their first car? Yeah, raise your hand. You remember your first car, don't you? Did you name it? I bet you some of you did. Yes, I remember my first car pretty vividly. It was a 1973 Chevy Nova. And when I get it, it was already 14 years old and had well over 100,000 miles on it. And when I say I got it my junior year, I really mean that my dad bought it for me my junior year. 1973 Chevy Nova, oh, it was fun. It was great to have a car with a big V8 350 engine in it. Could rev that baby up nice and loud. And it was easy to spin the tires because they were basically bald. <laughs> it was fun, it was great. But my dad bought it for me from a poor college student. This college student was gonna junk this car for 50 bucks. And my dad, with his savvy negotiating skills, talked him all the way to $200. <laughs> he said, any car that runs is worth 200 bucks. So he gave a poor college student 200 bucks for his old beater of a car. So now you know the kind of condition this car was in. We brought it home, parked it in the driveway. My parents brought me out to see it. Wow, what a sight to behold. It was painted in kind of a mustardy, yellowish, tannish, greenish, weird kind of color that was really popular in the early 70s. And it was trimmed with rust. <laughs> Everywhere, rust all over it. Every spot that was there. So my dad took one look at it and he's like, okay, this is your car, but it looks so ugly and is an eyesore in the neighborhood here. We gotta paint it. And I thought, awesome. A new paint job for this car. Ah, oh, that's super cool. I can't wait to get started, Dad. So my dad brought me out to the hardware store. We picked up a can of Rust-Oleum. Brought it back, and I painted that car with a brush. A paintbrush. Yes, I hand-painted my 1973 Chevy Nova. My dad was really working on the money thing at that point in time. Painted it. So I did get to pick the color, however. So the color I chose, the brightest red I could find. So now it was a bright red hand-painted 73 Nova. Wow. You know, you had to kind of put that stuff on the outside to make it look good. But it had an engine, and it had a transmission, and it, it started 100% of the time, most of the time. And it had been worn down. I mean, this thing had been driven quite a bit by a number of previous owners. So the engine wasn't in the greatest shape. It used to kind of click and clack. It had a bad lifter in it, at least that's what I was told. Some people said, well, you should probably go in and get that fixed. And my friend who knew the cars much better than I did looked at me and said, you know what? I wouldn't do that. Anything you take off of this is likely to fall apart. Just keep it right there. <laughs> so that's what I did. I drove that car. Now, you know, cars go through that, don't they? Cars need tune-ups. They got to be maintained regularly and taken care of. Well, you know, sometimes there's things that need to get tuned up in us too. There's restoration that God needs to do in our lives. That's why we're starting a new sermon series today called Restoration Project. We're going to be looking at some characters and friends of Jesus that he met and was talking with right after his resurrection. And each one of them had lost something. Each one of them needed some place in them to be restored. And you know that sometimes restoration isn't just an external process. It starts on the inside, doesn't it? Sometimes you pop that hood and you look at that engine and you say, well, hey, maybe it just needs an oil change or some cleaning off. And other times you look at it and you go, you know what? This one needs to be stripped all the way down and rebuilt. 
Whatever condition it is that we find ourselves in today, I hope that over the course of these next few weeks, you will feel the grace of God meet you in this place as he does a restoration work in each of our lives. So we're going to start this series today by taking a look at a character that some of you might be familiar with, others may have heard of but not be quite as familiar with the story, and others might be all brand new to you, and that's great. Wherever you find yourself here today, I don't want you to feel awkward. If you've never heard this story before, this is your first time, and I love to tell stories just because Jesus loved to tell stories too. So our story is going to come to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John, chapter 20. Now, if you have your own Bible with you, or if you have one on one of your devices, that's great. I always encourage people on Sunday mornings to either bring your own Bible or open one up on your cell phone or however it is you got it. Or if you don't, you can borrow one of ours. We've got some ushers who are willing to hand out some Bibles to you here so you can follow along because I really like it when we follow along and look at God's word together and when we even listen to God's word spoken together and read it with our own eyes. It's God's words, much more important than my words. So if you've got a Bible, that's great. Otherwise, just listen along as I read this story from John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You heard of Doubting Thomas before? Or maybe you know when somebody's called a Doubting Thomas. There's somebody around you that just seems to always have that kind of negative view. They're always questioning things. Well, you know, that label is what got put onto Thomas. Thomas is known kind of all throughout history as Doubting Thomas. And you know what? I think that's a little bit unfair because it simplifies the story too much. It makes the story into one of those memes where it's like, this is Thomas. Thomas doesn't believe Don't be a Thomas. (laughs) It's more complicated than that. We get to find out a little bit about Thomas. There's not a lot that's written about Thomas in Scripture, but we do get to read some of it. And these passages all come in the Gospel of John. We get introduced to him as a character, and we start to get some insights into Thomas and what this whole doubting thing was about for him and how it reflected in his life and what God needed to restore. 
So we're going to jump back first. You can either look this up in your Bible or just look it up at a later time. But the first time we run in to Thomas, he's with the disciples, and it's in John chapter 11, verse 16. And the story is this. Jesus has met with his disciples. They're out of town, but he gets news. He gets news from a town called Bethany, which is right near Jerusalem. And the news is Lazarus, your dear friend, is dying. The brother of Mary and Martha, two very dear people to Jesus. He hears that he is very, very sick and probably isn't going to survive. And so Jesus says, I need to go to Bethany to be there with Lazarus and with the family. But the disciples were worried because the disciples were like, listen, Jesus, um, I know that this is important to you, but you got to understand, Bethany is really near Jerusalem. And if you haven't noticed lately, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem who want to kill you. Religious leaders and others who are plotting a way to end your life. I don't think it's such a good idea for you and us to go to Bethany. But Jesus insisted. He said, listen, we need to go to Bethany for Lazarus' sake. Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, those are the words that Jesus used, but what he meant was that Lazarus had died. His disciples still weren't quite getting it. So they looked back to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, if he's asleep... He's got an alarm clock. He'll wake up, right? And it'll all be fine. Don't go. And that's when Thomas speaks. Thomas, who is with the rest of the disciples, looks to his friends and disciples and says, let's go with Jesus and be with him to die with him. How's that for a pep talk from the disciple Thomas? Hey, come on, guys, let's go die with Jesus. That's kind of rough, isn't it? It's kind of fatalistic. It's a little bit that, of an insight into Thomas's personality. I think that may have been some of who Thomas was. A little bit pessimistic, not always looking on the bright, shiny side of life, but maybe wondering how this all works, going there and trying to figure it out. Thomas will go there. He will say, look, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. I'm not sure what the outcome of all this is going to be. But I know that I want to be where Jesus is when Jesus dies. So while he does have that fatalistic view, it doesn't stop him from following Jesus. He's still willing, even through that doubt, to keep following Jesus in his pessimism. So that's what they do. They go, and you can read the rest of the story there. It's a miraculous, powerful story that we can read. But then we come a few chapters later into chapter 14, and we run into Thomas again. And this time, Jesus has just been with his disciples, and he's made it clear to them, I am going to die. And in three days, I will be resurrected. Now, believe me, his friends, all they heard was, I'm going to die. It's all they heard in their ear, too. So as Jesus was with his disciples, they were concerned. They were worried. And Jesus wanted to put them at ease. So he looked at them and he said these words in John 14, verse 1. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will bring you back and take you with me so you can be where I am. You know the way to where I'm going. Now think about that for a second. Jesus just looks at his disciples and says, you all know where I'm going. Now, to not feel like you're the dumbest person in the class, many of the disciples probably sat there and went, yeah, yeah, we know where he's, right? We know where he's going. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, yep, we know where you're going. 
But not Thomas. Thomas wants to know. Thomas is kind of cynical of this whole story. His doubt comes in many different ways, but this one, it drives him to a question, and he's the one who speaks out, the first one to speak out, and says to Jesus, look, Jesus, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus looks back at Thomas and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So there's Thomas once again, this time expressing his doubt, expressing his misunderstanding, his place of just trying to figure out what this all really means. Now, he doesn't abandon Jesus. He asks questions, seeking real answers from this place of who he is. Thomas, the cynical Thomas, the pessimistic, fateful Thomas. And that's where we catch up with our story that we read today. It's after the resurrection of Jesus. That means all the events of Holy Week have taken place. And his disciples have witnessed many of them, but not all of them. Because you see, by the time Jesus was going to the cross, many of his disciples had already scattered. They had left him. They were afraid to even be seen near him because they knew that their life could be at risk as well. A few were there. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. John was there. A couple others were off at a distance, but most of them had scattered and were far away. And then if you were here last Sunday, you know what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. Mary finds an empty tomb and meets the risen Christ right there who tells her, go and tell my brothers. And she does. She runs back to talk to the disciples and says, I have seen the Lord. And they all go, we don't think so. <laughs> so they run back to see for themselves. And they still don't see Jesus. So they walk back on their own. Downtrodden, depressed, and here we find them later that same evening. They're all together gathered in one room. They're afraid that the Jewish rulers are going to come after them. Because once you kill the leader, it's time to pick off the followers. Especially these ones who were closest to Jesus. So there they are huddled together in a room. The doors are locked. And miraculously, Jesus appears before them. Now, I'm guessing the first thing that went through their minds wasn't, this is Jesus. It was, ah! <laughs> it's a ghost. But Jesus looks to them, and now you understand why he says, peace be with you. Hey, see my hands? See my side? It's really me. I'm really here with you. In the resurrected body. He's right there. And the disciples are overjoyed except somebody's absent. Thomas isn't there. Thomas isn't there. Isn't that curious? Thomas, the faithful one. But Thomas, who was pretty fatalistic about what Jesus was going through, Thomas, who had some real questions about where Jesus was going and what this whole story was all about, Thomas, after the crucifixion of Jesus, knowing how horrifying and horrible that would be, Thomas snuck off on his own. 
He pulled himself away from the fellowship of those other believers. These people who he had walked with for three years had been close to the whole time. Thomas can't be around them. He is so depressed. He is so forlorn. He is suffering in his own way that he's by himself. And when he finally makes an appearance and makes his way back to see the other disciples, Jesus had already left. And the disciples looked at Thomas and said the exact same words that Mary had said to them. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, I don't believe it. Thomas was in a place of so much pain that he just couldn't believe this. It was a place of suffering for him. His friend, his master, his rabbi, was dead, and it was not enough for his brothers just to tell him that he was alive. He said, unless I see his hands and put my fingers in the scars, unless I can put my hand where the sword pierced his side, I'm not buying it. So a week goes by. A whole week goes by. Imagine the conversations that Thomas must have been having with his brothers and his sisters at that time. A week goes by, and the disciples are all together, and this time Thomas is with them. And Jesus appears in that locked room, just like he did before, and says, peace be with you. And without missing a beat, he looked at Thomas, said, Thomas, come here. See my hands? Put your finger where the scars are. Put your hand where the side is. Don't doubt, believe. And immediately, Thomas gives the first, most clear expression of the resurrection of Jesus and his place as the Son of God of anyone in history. He's the first one who says, My Lord and my God. He knows who is in front of him. And it's more than just a rabbi. It's more than just a good teacher. It is somebody who is his Lord that he is destined to follow and somebody who is now God himself, God in the flesh. He gets it. He gets it before anybody else does. He understands. Because his faith has been made sight right there. Right in that moment. Friends, I'm not sure where you are at today, but I know that people struggle with the Christian faith in lots of different ways. Maybe you're just kind of wired that way where you're always questioning things and you're just kind of suspect. You've seen life take you down some pretty rough paths and so you're pretty sure that it's going to keep going that way and you don't want to get your hopes up. So you're kind of pessimistic. Maybe instead you're one of those folks who has run into some difficult questions, some real practical questions about what Jesus is saying and you've never felt like it was safe enough to ask those questions. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to be amongst those who maybe don't get all of this and you're pretty sure that everybody else around you does. Or maybe you are one of those people who is suffering today, who has come through a place in your life that is painful and hard and you're still in the middle of it. And while you're in the middle of it, you can't see Jesus at all. You don't know where he is. You don't trust him. 
Friends, he's here. And he will meet you in your suffering. Back in 1996, Angela and I became pregnant with our first child. And it had been a long wait. We had gone through quite a season of infertility. And it was hard on both of us, but especially hard on Angela. And I remember the moment when we got the news that my wife was pregnant. We were overjoyed. We ran to tell all of our friends, especially our closest friend, Doug and Cheryl Lucas, they were working at a shop that I was also working at right down the road on Schooneman Road, that big red pole barn there. We had a little place called Alpha Upholstery right above it. And I went to go see Doug and share the news. And he rejoiced with us. He was so happy. We got back in the car and made off with the rest of our day. And I didn't feel any more joy. Now I was scared. I was afraid, not of being a parent, but afraid that none of this was really going to happen. I'd seen it before. I'd heard the stories before. Somebody with a miscarriage. Somebody who expected everything to go smooth at this point, and then it didn't. And I couldn't allow myself to feel joyful about the potential arrival of this child. It was devastating. It was hard. I didn't know what to do with it. And I remember clear as day, the day that I was driving in my car, right up Highway 35E, exiting right at the exit at Highway, or uh, at County Road E. And as soon as I exited, I pulled off the road and got into the side there because I couldn't see anymore because my eyes were so full of tears. And I was crying out to God, God, I don't believe this is gonna happen. I don't trust that this is really gonna happen. And I want to be filled with joy over this, but I can't. I just can't believe it. And that's in the moment right there in the depths of my sorrow and suffering that Jesus spoke to me. Now, everybody hears Jesus differently. I don't want you to compare yourself to me in any way, shape, or form because I'm certainly not the hero of this story. But in that moment of deepest, darkest pain, Jesus spoke to me. He said, Darren, this child is going to come to term. And he's going to be a boy. And he's sitting right over there. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I don't want to make light of anybody's circumstance or situation. Because just because that's how it happened to go for me... It may not be going that way for you. You may be in a place of suffering and doubt and depression and disillusionment and cynicism about God, about faith, about Jesus, about all of this. But here's what I know. If you seek God in your suffering, you will find Jesus in his suffering. See, that's what was the tipping point for Thomas. It wasn't enough to just have the resurrected Jesus be in front of him. He had to see his hands and put his hands there into those nail-scarred hands of Jesus. He had to see the side where he bled and suffered and was in so much pain 
And Jesus brought Thomas right over and he said, I understand. I understand how much it hurts because I've been there and I've suffered for you. Now trust me when I say there is more to life than this and that there is hope. You can have faith in God in the midst of those circumstances. Whatever your circumstance happens to be. We're going to pray here in a minute. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help reveal Jesus to us right in this place. And if you're in that place of, of suffering and, and disillusionment, I'm going to pray that you would hear and see Jesus revealed to you in your heart, in your mind, someplace along the journey. It doesn't mean that the suffering is going to be over for you right away. I can't predict that and I wouldn't dare. But I will tell you this, Jesus was pretty serious when he said, if you seek me, you will find me. Keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking. And if you seek the truth, you will find Jesus at the end of it every time. Truth seekers always do. And the second thing that I'm going to encourage you to do is some of you may have those questions that are questions that are more up here. They're less down here and they're more up here. Hey, I get that too. You may have some things that you're really struggling with in the faith going, I just can't put these pieces together. And you're not saying it with your arms crossed like, well, this is all a bunch of phony baloney. I don't believe anything and nothing you could say could change that. You're just in one of those places where you go, I got questions about this and I don't know where it's safe to ask. There is a safe place to ask. And you see it in your bulletin, you're going to hear about it in a few minutes. Next week, next Sunday afternoon, starting something called Ask Away. And it's a place for you to come and ask the questions in a safe place with other people who may be asking the same questions or a different question, maybe one you hadn't even thought of before. And they'll be there to meet you in grace and in community and listen to what you have to say without judgment but with a sense of seeking the truth and finding Jesus at the end of it. That's the restoration that we need, and some of you may need that restoration today, to have that engine of your faith that's broken down, rebuilt. Rebuilt today. That's what we're going to pray. That's what we're going to believe, and that's where we're going to go right now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the God of grace and mercy, you are omnipotent, which means you are all-powerful. And you are omniscient, which means you are all-knowing. And yet you came as a man through Jesus Christ and suffered and died, which means that you know everything that we've gone through too because you've experienced it yourself. And Lord, the story that is now, 2,000 years old may feel distant and may feel ancient to some of us, but Lord, you are alive today, right here, right now. You are present in this room because you promised you would be whenever your followers were gathered together. Lord, I pray that anybody who's feeling alone today would know that they are in a community of grace right here and right now. And that it is okay to have their questions. It's okay to struggle with their doubts. Lord, as long as they are sincerely seeking the truth and sincerely wanting to know you in your suffering, Lord. Because we don't see and understand the empty tomb unless we see the full cross. Jesus, remind us of your suffering. Help us 
to know where it is that we are in our walk, Jesus. Be present with us in this place, in this season, in this time. I pray that anybody who's listening right now, Lord, would sense your presence, would know your love and your forgiveness, would know you in your suffering so that they could trust you with all of their life. We put our trust in you, Jesus, as we walk with you today. Thank you for restoring us and making us whole. We pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen.